Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of 30 Minutes Presidents Club. My name is Armand Farouk. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Sigelski. And we got a back-to-back gong special recommended by Sarah Brazier. We have the one and only Adam O'Chart, top AE at gong.io, a killer in the disco and in the demo. Nick, why should people listen? Well, Adam kicks us off with some really killer objection handling techniques, but my favorite part about this episode was how deep he goes into demo skills. Everything from how to structure your demos, to what content to show, to actually recapping a demo, to figuring out, did you hit your mark with the demo? Three, two, one. Did we hit the mark with the episode? Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. If you get an email and the action required on that email is going to take you less than two minutes to do, do it on the spot. It's not worth adding it to your to-do list, having to look at the item, remember what you need to do. That's going to take you more than two minutes anyway. So do it on the spot, get it off your plate. Now we documented our best templates and tips to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang. And you can get that documentation for free at the link in the show notes. Today's show is sponsored by Calendly. If you're interested in accelerating your sales cycle, improving your prospects experience, and booking more demos, there's one scheduling automation platform on the market that does all three. Calendly offers team-based scheduling, solutions and integrations for every department, and lead routing to instantly book qualified meetings from your website and match known leads to reps based on real-time Salesforce assignment. I find it really helpful when I have to book meetings with multiple people on my side so that I don't have to coordinate everyone's calendars. Get started today by checking out the show notes or Calendly.com. This actionable tactic on selling to power is sponsored by SalesLoft. Don't start from zero when a champion introduces you to power. Explain the three to four priorities you learn from the champion, but then ask them to validate what's really important to them or what we missed. And we partnered with SalesLoft to give you a whole bunch of talk tracks on selling to power. The link is in the show notes. Here's my secret to being a sales superhuman. It's auto reminders for everything. If I expect any reply from a prospect, I press command H and superhuman pops it right back into my inbox. If I don't get a reply in two days, that means if you handle an objection, if you suggest times for a meeting, or if you ask for cuts back on red lines, always create a two day reminder task and assume they will not reply. So if you want to follow up on time, every time you can get a free month of superhuman by checking it out in the show notes. Adam, welcome to the show. You know we start every single episode with your top three actionable takeaways. Let's get your three. First and foremost, it's expediting your experience. It's gaining more tribal knowledge as a cold caller. And you do that by virtual role play. So getting yourself set up before each call. The second is something that that we coin as the Anaconda Squeeze at Gong. If anyone that's seen Nacho Libre, they'll get that reference. But essentially, it's objection handling tactics. It's the way that we've systematized it so that when you get an objection on a call, you're prepared to answer and you're confident. What's the last one? Round us out. The last one is specific to SDRs. It's tracking deals from initial contact to close. So once you hand that meeting off, that's not the end of the tunnel. You got to follow that all the way through. So when you become an A, you're ready to rock. All right. So this Anaconda Squeeze thing, I really got to talk about mostly because I was a college wrestler and Armand was my college wrestling training partner. And so I like the Nacho Libre thing. Talk to me about what that framework looks like. You get an objection from a customer. How do you use the framework and actually what comes out of your mouth to the customer? I'm going to start with like a, a one minute story to give a little bit of a context here. When I came to Gong, I'd never sold before. I was super excited. I thought I was going to crush it. I booked three meetings in my first month. You can understand everyone's been there and had a bad month and knows what it feels like. Reviewed some game film with my, my manager at the time, a guy named Tanner. And it was pretty evident that I just couldn't handle objections. I think that the playbook told me to continue to pitch feature functionality. And that just dug me deeper into the hole. I'd happen to be reading Chris Voss's book, Never Split the Difference. Anyone that's been in sales has at least heard it, if not read it before. And in line with that, 
the huge part there is about a lot of mirroring, right? And the psychological effects of mirroring when you're having a conversation. So that in line with a couple of things that I picked up on my calls, I realized that I needed to be more patient. I needed to start to psychologically overcome objections with the tactic like mirroring. And I needed to learn more from a prospect, truly understand the root of that objection. So then I could come back and actually come with a, a pointed call to action. So what we put together essentially is my way to rebound from that tough month was uh, what we coined as the Anaconda Squeeze, but it's three steps. It's pause, mirror, and then ask a loaded question. Talk to me about a loaded question. What does that mean? So the whole point of a loaded question is to number one, understand, well, there's two parts, understand really what's going on with that objection, right? Where did that come from? And the secondary part of that is to understand maybe a different angle that you can take. I think that at a fundamental level, typically objections stem from the fact that that person doesn't believe that you add value to what they're focused in. So the idea is how do we find a different path to value? So mirroring back essentially is your way of saying, I'm listening to you and I heard what you said. So if you tell me budgets are tied up, got it, Nick, it sounds like budgets are tied up. Psychologically, now we've diffused that, right? They know that they're heard. They know that you're listening. Something that you might want to come back with from a loaded question perspective is, do you mind telling me a little bit about some of the areas where you've allocated your budget in the past few quarters? Now, from Gong's perspective, we're going to get some insight and from our perspective into what they're focused on. We've added body count. In addition to that, we bought a couple tools to help with pipeline generation. Oh, tell me more about that. Right now we have a string we can pull on and ideally circle back around and come in and and hit them with that specific uh, call to action on the back end relative to, well, given your focus here, I actually think we can help over here. Do you ever get people who are frustrated where it's like, I'm giving you two, three objections. And every time I give you an objection, you don't freaking answer it for me, man. You just like mirror me and then you ask me more questions. And I'm like, dude, I want to get my question answered. How do you soften it up for your prospects to a certain extent? You know what's funny, Armand, is my assumption when I read Chris Foss's book was that people are going to tell me to shut up, right? And to be candid, I actually use the mirroring tactic like among my circle of friends with my, my beloved girlfriend. She didn't want to go get food. I would mirror on her hard. And he talks about this in his book. There's a psychological effect of someone mirroring you that it literally breaks down your cognitive focus. And then you all of a sudden want to like from a reciprocity standpoint, give back and contribute to that conversation. As humans, we're psychologically predisposed to want to be heard and to want to talk about ourselves. So when I get objections, I tap into that. The level of information that people give you, I mean, I've literally, I'm not kidding, I've made thousands of calls at Gong, never had anyone tell me, stop asking me questions. So you're mirroring, are you just repeating back what they just said to you? Or I've read the book also, and I remember him saying something about, you repeat the last three words, what's it look like to mirror effectively without parroting? Because I think there's a difference between mirroring and parroting, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think inflection is one of the most important parts there. I will say there's a distinction between how I mirror as an AE and as as an AE that makes cold calls, how I mirror on a cold call. In Chris Voss's book, it's repeating their last few words in an upward inflicting tone. We don't have budget. So you don't have budget? On a cold call, if someone did that to me, Armand, in your point, I would tell them to shut up. Like, yeah, I don't have budget. I just told you I don't have budget. The idea here, it's a closed-ended statement, and the sole purpose is to tell them that they're heard, right? So I'll use a different example. We're not evaluating tools right now. Got it. Okay. So you're definitely, you're not evaluating tools right now. And then we move on. And then you go into some sort of open-ended question. So again, it's literally just mirroring what they're saying and and taking that a step further. If you can mirror their tonality and the way that they delivered that, that takes it a layer further and it allows you to start to get into their head a little bit and then start being able to pull back more. One thing that I find that Gong does some really good content on is talk to listen ratios and the types of questions you're asking and things like that. But I think oftentimes one of the things that reps will get caught into is when you talk about handling objections more specifically, you'll get into these Q&A battles 
right? Where you're losing control of the call or things like that. And so after you're handling some objections, how do you start to redirect the call back to your original discovery flow so you maintain control of your call? I think, Armand, that's a good distinction, right? And, and that's why that third part of that anaconda squeeze is the call to action, right? It's now let's take all this information you gathered, let's summarize it in like 15 to 20 seconds and say, given that this is top of mind, I'm truly convinced that we should at least have exploratory conversation. I'm not asking you to enter a buying cycle. I'm just asking for 20 minutes, me and you to sync up. And if it doesn't make sense, then we can part ways as friends. So let's take a step back and let's look at your general discovery flow. And so typically discovery calls fall into a couple of big buckets within the call, right? And so first, how do you structure your calls on the high level? Starting with kind of like the obvious basics, right? There's going to be that small talk on the front end. I'm a firm believer in building rapport. I also think that the best people nail small talk in two to three minutes and get to the point. Moving forward, there's the obvious agenda. A couple of things to state that, that we do as a collective at Gong that I've seen be successful is, is put the ball in their court as many times as possible, but also maintain control of the conversation. So asking them, hey, before I propose an agenda, was there anything you needed to get out of our time today? Um, from a discovery perspective, I think you'll start to understand specific things like, yeah, I actually really need to get pricing or I really needed to understand what implementation sounds like. And these things are leading indicators towards how do we start to structure this conversation and actually the discovery I run. Someone that wants pricing or an implementation plan on a first call, like that to me is a, a much more expedited process than someone that comes in and says, I'm just here to learn. Going into the actual uh, discussion, I think the most important thing that I try to do and, and that we've seen be successful at scale, I mean, we're looking at, at going with 40 plus uh, AEs, is zoom out from what they assume our product can help with. And, and questioning along the lines of, hey, if you're sitting down with your C-suite and you're talking about the next six months in 2020, what are like the one, two, and three things that you need to nail? And then from there, like maybe we can help, maybe we can, but I'd love to start there. And then you continue to drill and find out what's most important to them, what's most important to their bosses. And then from there, you formulate a, a more in-line questioning that's going to ideally get to the quote-unquote pain funnel that we can then adhere to. Two really important points to call out. The first one is you're asking them what they're hoping to get out of the call, and that's going to dictate where your disco goes. And then the second piece is you're also starting high level with the key business priorities. And so let's start on the business priorities for a second. How do you ask those questions or how do you get them to talk about their priorities in a way that it's not, well, look, dude, like my number one priority is like, I don't know, fixing my lead routing, but I'm here to talk about conversation analysis, right? There's a mutual understanding that every solution doesn't solve every problem, right? So I, I'm not opposed to someone telling me that their solution is they need to hire more talent, right? Or they need to fill their recs, right? We're not a recruiting service. So from there, you can say, cool, based on these specific things, it sounds like from our perspective, we can help the most here. The biggest concern that I always have is we spend a lot of time digging into something and building a business case on a call. And you find out at the end of that call or on a later conversation that like, yo, that's priority six, right? Like we're juggling way too much and that'll never get budget cleared up. Awesome. And so from there, you're getting me to list out my main priorities, right? And so from there, I give you a couple different priorities. Are you then going to drill into one of them and then go deep and wide there? So I think that if there's something that I know we can nail, I'll drill in. I'm personally, I use Sandler methodology. Before I dig in too deep, I'm going to ask some specific pointed questions. I want to know how they've tried to solve this in the past. How long has it been a priority? And who else is focused on this? Those are three ways to kind of navigate understanding, is this actually something that's important? As opposed to asking how important is this and coming off as a salesperson. The next point is the way that your pitch is structured should typically in line with your value prop and should actually have a few different avenues. So from there, I'll go in and pitch our elevator pitch per se, and our, our small slide deck, 
and I'm, I'm probably trying to lead them towards a specific area. I'm going to tie it back to what I learned. But then again, I give them another opportunity based on these specific areas, right? We have 20 minutes to dive into a demo. What do you need to nail? If there's a misalignment between what they told me before and there, well, then I have to start getting creative and finding out what's really important. 95% of the time, it's going to align with what we ran in discovery. And that's kind of a, a final redundancy on me making sure I'm actually moving in the right direction. I love the thing you're doing where you keep almost seeding control to the customer. It's really nuanced what you're doing. But at the beginning of that discovery call, instead of you laying out the agenda and then saying, hey, is there anything you want to add to the agenda? You're actually starting and saying, is there anything in particular we have to go over today before I propose the agenda? It's just a little flip. But what it does is now your agenda is not clouding or biasing like the things that they say, because if you propose the agenda yourself, someone who's like kind of 50-50 invested is going to be like, yeah, that's fine. Let's just do that. But if you ask them first, now they've got to actually think. And that's that's a challenge we deal with with customers sometimes is getting them to truly, truly engage when they're meeting with 18 different vendors in a week. Actually make them think, what do I want to learn from this guy today? So you're doing this in the demo also. Are there other times that you're you're seeding or turning over control of the customer where it's like, look, you take the reins and you tell me what we have to do here and then I'll tell you the best way to get there? Yeah, I mean, there's two distinct times that I that I strategically roll this out. And and I mean, I'm sure every sales rep says this at some point, but it's like I feel almost guilty talking about this because I've learned it from my peers, right? And I've been lucky enough to listen to them on the lines and talk through this. Um one of the, the more strategic places that it's it's uh, outlined is in the actual agenda itself. So I think that there's a, a concern with running discovery and specifically when you're at a really high level. So I, I don't I don't ask this questioning when I'm at like a, a you know manager level or director level even, but when I'm at a VP or a C level, um, I typically tell them, hey, typically on these conversations, there's two components that are going to be helpful. There's going to be that elevator pitch, and then there's going to be a little bit of discovery. I'm happy to start with the elevator pitch if you'd prefer that. But if you're happy to run a little bit of mutual discovery, we can do that and I'll tailor my pitch on the back end. Which do you prefer? And I think that as a, a VP or a CRO, number one, they feel in charge. You've given them the opportunity. And here's the thing. Both of those situations equal them giving you commitment that they're going to let you run discovery on them. So they're kind of like backed into a corner. That I heard right when I became an EE, I rolled it out. And it's just like so successful in terms of that disco flow. Let's say you show them the slide deck. Where do you take it from there? Like, how do you drive your next line of questioning after that? Yep. So it's similar how I told you in our slide deck, right? We have a few different paths. Well, based on that, I talk about, hey, with these three specific value props that we highlighted here, I'm curious which one resonates the most. And from there, they're going to drill in. And I'm going to ask a couple more questions, right? Because I think a lot of people will choose kind of the easy option. Got it. Well, well I'm curious, well, you know, why did that resonate? Did something stand out? And from there, you dig into that. And then you go into saying, hey, um, I mentioned that the two parts of this was going to be a little mutual discovery. I'd love to un learn a little bit more about that. Do you mind unpacking that elaborating? And then from there you do, if you're a challenger guy, um, you do your route. If you're a Sandler guy, you go down the funnel, so on and so forth. I'm kind of curious about the way that you are carrying this over to a demonstration with a customer, because we haven't spent a lot of time on demo skills on this show, but I think it's an area that's really underrated in sales reps. So do you have any best practices when it comes to giving a demo to a customer? Yeah, I, I think for starters, it's kind of in line with my entire philosophy and style. One of the things that I want to know, and you can't always ask it directly, but how do people learn, right? And I think that I'll ask people like, hey, I'm going to walk you through some basics. I'm going to talk about some of the tech side of things, you know, how we're integrating, how we're doing this and that. And then I want to walk you through a few workflows that I know will be relevant based on what we talked about. Would it be most helpful with you if we walk through and kind of clicked around? Or are you someone that more or less just kind of wants to see the main pages, understand the dashboards? And from there, we can drill in. 
again, Nick, I mean, you're starting to spot a trend, right? I'm going to let them kind of guide me. And then, you know, it's funny at times people are bullish and say, Adam, I'm done. Just show me the platform. And that's fine. Like, that's cool. They asked for it, right? I'm going to still pepper in some discovery. I'm going to show them a few different things. So you're talking about peppering discovery. What does that look like on a demo? Are you just pausing every 10 minutes and saying any questions or did that make sense? That's a death trap. And I learned that early and often. I think knowing the ins and outs of, of each of your platforms and whoever's listening to this, the platforms that they have, there are ways in which you should be able to solve problems that they have that they're not doing today. Right. I think like that, that whole point of discovery is where are you today? Where do you want to go? How long is that road? Let me show you how short it is with our product. Right. Some of the questions you can start to answer is, hey, I feel like this is in line with when you talk about decreasing your ramp. This would be really impactful. This is exactly how we've helped teams like A, B, and C. From your world, do you have anything similar to this rolled out? Or have you tried to solve something similar to this? And then again, it's kind of like rekindling that pain funnel, starting them to think like, okay, you know what? I don't have anything like this. Or alternatively, yeah, no, we've done this, this, and that, and it hasn't been successful. So it's kind of a win-win from there. Another question I have around the demo is, let's say you had a call with Armand, he's the director of sales, they're thinking about rolling out Gong, and you've gotten three use cases that you know you can solve for. Maybe he's focused on ramp time, he's focused on getting better market intelligence around competitors, and he also wants to help coach his reps better. How do you decide how you order and staff things in the demo, and when do you know when enough is enough? You've shown enough of a certain feature. The way that I would stack rank those is dependent on two things, based on what they talked about being the most important and the specific feature that aligns with our ability to present the biggest wow factor. Um, if it's a competitive deal, right, there's, there's something unique in competitive as a competitive advantage. And we're lucky at Gong to be poised in the position we are to show different things. So from that perspective, I mean, you want to essentially have like jab, 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 and then come with a haymaker, right? And if you can have that kind of a effect, that's the most important thing. In a perfect world, you align that haymaker with the thing that's most important to them. I'm also not afraid to tell someone like, hey, I know that these are the three things you're focused on. Personally, I think the best use of our time to really drill into this, and then I'm happy to set up more time on the back end if we need to, to talk about these things and set up a separate meeting. That's the route I go. I'd rather have one use case nailed down than three diluted use cases. How about like common demo pitfalls? Are there times when you've got a group, there's two or three people, and you've got the skeptic in the corner who doesn't believe that this thing is really doing what it can, or you've got the person with a million and a half questions, and they want you to see you click that button and that button and that button. How do you make sure your demos stay on track when you're giving them? I think it's funny you use the example of like the person that wants to click everything. There's two points to that. The approach that I have, which is like giving them a lot of authority to start to make decisions and choose where things are going, has its pitfall. And that is that you give people the opportunity to start to interject and disrupt your flows. I think that the reason it works for my personality type is I'm someone that, that can kind of flip the switch, regain control and start to become aggressive, right? It's also part of setting a really good agenda. Right. If you set a succinct agenda, you can say, hey, I, I know there's a lot we can unpack here. At the end of the day, as I mentioned in the agenda, right, we have a lot to cover in a short period of time. I'm happy to field questions afterwards or via email. So you want to make sure that you do that. And then like the overarching pitfall and something that I, I'd love to get data on, I have a theory that the more you click in a demo, the less effective that demo is. I've always said the less pages you can show and the less dashboards you can flash, the better. You should show two or three things that when they close their eyes at night, they're just like, oh, man, I, I remember that. I forget what that was like. And this happened to me very recently. I got on a second call with a decision maker. Guy's like, dude, you nailed it. I haven't stopped thinking about like that. And it was something that wasn't even that crazy, but it was, I knew it would resonate. Well, it's amazing. We spend all day, every day in our software and you might show four demos a day to different decision makers. And so you've seen your thing a million and a half times. 
But when you get on with a VP of sales who's never seen Gong, that's the first time that they're seeing it. And it's the first time they're trying to digest it. And sometimes we make the mistake as reps where we try to show everything and it overwhelms them. And you actually make the software seem more complicated than it actually is. So when you think about keeping it simple, that oftentimes works to Nick's point with a VP of sales. You don't want to bring them into the depths of the software, but you guys sell an interesting solution where your reps are really the business users and they're focused on looking at their calls, but then the managers have a different view. And then the VPs of sales have a different view. And then on top of that, you've got sales ops who also has to make purchasing decisions and do all the integrations. And so when you think about demoing those different audiences, one, are you trying to do all those in the same meeting? Or two, like how do you cut up and change your demo for each of those audiences? Not only is it a different focus, there's different business goals, they're different personality types, right? You have an AE that's like, you're taking my time off the floor. Right. You got a sales ops person that's like, how does this integrate with Salesforce? What does it do for me without me doing anything? Right. There's just like so many different personas we're navigating. I think the most important thing, well, number one, in a perfect scenario, I break all of those conversations. I break them down. I just say, hey, everyone, I'm happy to meet all of you at this time. In reality, Albert and sales ops, you're going to have a few different questions than Armand, the sales manager. I'm happy to meet the VP and the, and the managers together, but we should have this operations conversation separately. And I, always say, hey, my biggest concern is there's a lot of different parties in the room right now. There's a lot of different focuses. I want to answer all your questions, but we genuinely won't have enough time. So my ask to you is if you have questions that are more pointed, jot them down, send me an email, and I'm even happy to spend time with each of you separately. What I want to make sure is we check all these boxes and hit everything before the end of our 45-minute presentation. And so we've gone through agenda. We've gone through the core of the disco. We've even gone through demo. Let's say it's all done, right? You've shown them all this stuff. You hit a couple. You hit them with the haymaker at the end of the demo. And now you stop showing software. How do you start to wrap this whole thing up with some next steps and get yourself closer to closing the deal? Yep. So there's two points. I think number one is always do a pulse check, right? And, and I use the, the simple language of zero being I wouldn't use it if it was free. 10 being I wish I had this 10 years ago, right? And I think that that's like really easy language. So that's what I do. So pulse check at the end of it, right? And I think that people will respect that. And I think you give them the right to be candidly honest and tell them like, hey, I, I want to be on the exact same page as you. So feel free to be blunt. And then the second part is, again, I always tell them, hey, I have an idea for what next steps look like, but I want to put the ball in your court. And the reason I do that is a lot of times they will give me a lot of in intelligence around their buying process when I say that. My next step would be, hey, let's set up a pilot. Let's get a couple stakeholders in the room, so on and so forth. And I interject steps in the buying process that they didn't have, right? What if someone wanted to buy without a pilot? So when I say that, someone will say, cool, let me just ping my CFO and see if we can get approved for this. And if we can, you can send an order. When I was about to just inject a bunch of steps and next steps, right? So again, hey, before I propose next steps, I have a couple ideas on ways we could take this, but I'd love to hear from you. What do you think would be the best place to take this? And it's surprising, they'll guide you down that path. So I think I'm going back a couple points on this. I know Gong is not the cheapest solution on the market, right? You guys are the premium on the market. You guys are the BMW. People are going to pay more for Gong. And so how do you think about changing the way you do discovery? Or how do you think about asking different discovery questions or holding the line when you're in a competitive price war with a rip and replace type of battle? With anything in sales, it's not won or lost in that moment, right? It's won or lost in how you, how you built value and how you delivered from like the first time you made, made contact all the way on. If you find yourself in a pricing war at any time, you're probably screwed, right? You can't be better unless you're different. So you have to be a different solution. You have to be more aligned with what they're focused on. And I think before you start to go into any sort of like battle, you have to just make sure like, hey, are we agreed that we're, we're better here? We're who you want. And then we'll be able to work together there. In a perfect world, they agree. They typically don't. It's just the way that it is. And then it gets into like the nitty gritty boxing match or 
so on and so forth. Here we go. We talked about a lot of good habits. We hit discovery calls, cradle to grave, agendas, everything from disco, demo, next steps. But we haven't talked about some of the bad habits. And so if there was one bad habit to break for every rep out there, what would it be? I think knowing the people I know, talking to sales reps, living the life of an AE and and an SDR, I think it's overthinking. I think it is paralysis by overanalysis, right? I think that we think way too much about that email we're going to send, way too much about how we're going to overcome a specific objection. When if you can be present, you can be in the moment, you know your product, you know your value prop, and you just be yourself and you have a conversation, that's going to net you better results. It's also going to save you a ton of time and make you much more uh, efficient as a person. Anything else you want to leave with the audience before we jump? No, I mean, I think that uh, that's it, man. This is great. This is fun. Everybody, go buy some gong from Adam and hang on for a 60-second recap email coming up soon. Cheers. Today's deal acceleration cheat code is brought to you by Pipedrive, which is a CRM built by sellers for sellers. The best way to drive your pipeline forward is to every single day, pull up a list of all of your open opportunities and look at each opportunity by stage and think, what can I do today that will increase my likelihood of winning this deal? That's how you keep your ops moving forward in between meetings that you have on the calendar. Now we documented five cheat codes that can help you cut your sales cycle in half with Pipedrive. There's a link in the show notes to steal them. Today's prospecting tip is brought to you by Woodpecker. When you're sending a sales email, you generally want to avoid putting punctuation in the subject line. If you've got an exclamation point, it makes it seem like you're shouting at them. Look at this amazing offer. And a question mark just smells salesy. So avoid punctuation. Now, if you want to steal my full sales cadence from my friends at Woodpecker, there's a link in the show notes for you to go get it and try it for free. Did you know that 60% of proposals are viewed on a mobile device, which means if you're sending a tech stock or a slide deck, the formatting is going to look really ugly and you're going to make a bad impression. Luckily, our friends at Quiller are here to help. Quiller pages are built on the web, which means they're mobile responsive and they actually look good on a cell phone. And Quiller is having an offer right now to upgrade your proposal from an ugly tech stock to a Quiller page for free. So you can see what your boring proposal looks like as a beautiful Quiller page. There is a link in the show notes to take advantage of the offer. Today's sales email tip is brought to you by Lavender. If you want to get more replies to your sales emails, try removing exclamation points and question marks from your email subject lines. They cause open rates to plummet. Instead, make the subject line feel internal. It should be short, one to three words, and it should showcase the topic of the email, but also be about them. We sat down with Lavender and built a sales email framework guide with emails for every step of your sales process. And there is a link in the show notes to get it for free. Your top four takeaways from the episode with Adam Ochart include, number one, mirror the objection, then ask a loaded question for the anaconda squeeze. Number two, use slides not to pitch your product, but to give prospects control over what they want to talk about for the rest of the call. Number three, when you're dealing with VPs of sales or CROs, that's C-suite, ask them up front before the demo if they're the type that wants to see everything or if they just want the high level. That way you don't bring them into the depths if you don't need to. And then number four, up front, especially when you're dealing with a room of eight people, you've got to tell them your biggest concern. And in that big of a room, your biggest concern is you don't want to get stuck in the demo and in the tactical weeds. And so that'll help you keep tactical questions to a minimum, and then you can handle them offline. Nick, how can people help us? Well, Armand, I don't know about you, but I'm always really flattered when I get some love on LinkedIn. But this week, let's spread it to some other people. Sarah last week, Adam this week, they had some killer episodes. So go on LinkedIn, show them some love, and thank them for coming on 30 Minutes to President's Club. And with that, we'll see you all next week. 
Today's tactic to triple your connect rate is brought to you by RocketReach, who provides data that lets you reach out to the right person at the right account at the right time. Every time you're reaching out to an account, pull down the contacts again. Yes, I know it sucks, but the average tech tenure is two years, which means 50% of the workforce turns over every year. So look up the account, pull anyone who was hired, and scratch anyone who was left. And one way you can pull verified and accurate data is with RocketReach. So if you like this, check out their toolkit on eight ways to triple your cold call connects in the show notes. Otter AI's Otter Pilot for Sales gives you the freedom to sell on your discovery calls by taking notes for you. One of the best ways to deepen your discovery is to ask your prospect about the impetus behind their goals. So when a prospect tells me they want to advertise on more sales podcasts, I'll say, well, it's not every day that you wake up and decide you want to sponsor a podcast. What's causing you to even explore this in the first place? Now, we put together the ultimate discovery checklist with our friends at Otter AI, which you can get for free at the link in the show notes.